welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, Henry George, Prophet of American Modernity. He was read by British Prime Minister David Lloyd George and Chinese national leader Sun Yat-sen. According to George Mason professor Phil Magnus, his ideas were far more widely read and discussed than even Karl Marx before the Russian Revolution of 1917. He was so popular in some American major cities that he even came in second in a New York mayoral race, with famous reformer Theodore Roosevelt coming in third. In an era where Americans were grappling with how to contend with rapid change, Henry George, the prophet of San Francisco, thought he had the answer to curbing monopoly power while unleashing American democracy and creativity. The concept of the single land value tax. What was this idea? How did it sweep up so many? And what legacy did he leave us today? With me to discuss these and other questions is Lars Doucet, a modern-day Georgist and author of the self-published Land is a Big Deal. Lars, welcome. Howdy. Great to be here, Avi. So let me start uh, with, a, I guess, a basic introductory question uh, for our listeners. Who was Henry George? And how did he come to be not only a a major social reformer, but someone who stood out in an era when so many were trying to solve the problems of changing American life? Right. So Henry George is is an interesting character. So just to give a brief biography of his life. So um, he grew up in um, not not to a particularly wealthy family and um, in his own uh, young adulthood, he immediately found himself plunged into poverty. Um, but one of the things was before that happened, he had the opportunity to really travel the world because his father basically made him get a job um, on a ship. So he spent um, his teenage years sailing all around the world to India and Ireland and all over the place. And um, when he came back home, became a young adult, got married, um, he was found himself I- impoverished almost right away. And there's this famous scene where he basically goes around begging and, um, you know, because he's, his, his children are on the brink of starvation. He eventually is able to stabilize his life a little bit. He takes up, um, being a newspaper man, um, working printing offices and such. And, uh, that's where he first makes his big claim to fame. Um, he starts off writing, um, his, his first big breakout piece is what the railroad road will bring us. At this time, he's in San Francisco. He spends a lot of time on both coasts, but at this point in his life, he's in San Francisco. And when he's out there, um, 
at the time, you know, the railroad is coming to um, the West Coast, right? And everyone has all these ideas of what kind of things are going to happen. And he basically stakes out a bold claim that the railroad is not going to bring us prosperity, or at least not all of us. It's actually going to bring us a lot of problems. And um, this kind of foreshadows his later work um, striking against monopoly privilege. But he basically correctly predicts a lot of problems that the railroad will bring us, you know, at least us common folk ruin. And um, then he goes on from there. He hasn't yet developed his whole single tax idea yet. But then later he starts to cotton on to this idea about what he calls land monopoly, which is that the fundamental problem with the economy um, isn't capital. It isn't labor. It's, it's land. And the rules about who gets to own land and the role that land has in the economy. And then he later develops that into this big idea. And he has his, um, you know, the philosophy we would now call Georgism after him. And then he also develops this prescription to solve it, the land value tax, also known sometimes in his time as the single tax. We'll get into that. Um, but he basically goes from these humble beginnings as, um, you know, a newspaper man. He, um, he then later, you know, famously runs for uh, mayor of New York um, under the the political, as a third party, under the, um, I believe it's the United Labor Movement. He was very associated with the Knights of Labor at the time. And um, he runs the first time and comes in second place. He runs again, and then he dies of a stroke four days before the election. And then at his death, at his funeral, it's said that... Um, I forget exactly how many people, but but it's hundreds of thousands of people come to see him lying in state, uh, which is something like 10% of the population of New York at the time. So this guy was goes from very humble beginnings to becoming um, this big firebrand um, kind of economy, uh, political economist. And um, I don't believe he ever held um, elected office other, you know, he, though he certainly ran for mayor in, in New York City. Um, mostly he's doing organizing and activism, um, up until then, um, uh, up until his death in, um, in, uh, 18, forget exactly which year it is, but towards the end of the 20th century. Okay. So now that we have a, a good brief sketch of uh, Henry George's life, let's delve deep into the idea. What was this single tax concept that took fire and what was it meant to solve and how was it meant to solve it? So Henry George's main idea basically is that keep in mind, he's writing, um, he's contemporary to Marx. And it's really interesting because at this time in American history, you've got um, the closing of the American frontier. So let me start with what the what the land value tax and the single tax is. So Henry George's proposed solution essentially to poverty is the land value tax. He thinks, and what is a land value tax? It's similar to a property tax, but it excludes the value of all of the structures and buildings that are on the land. It's just the value of the so-called unimproved value of the land. And specifically, it's the rental value. So basically, whatever you would pay to rent essentially an empty lot, um, he believes that that value should be collected by society, you know, in the form of a tax. And um, if you were to implement this tax, he believes it would solve a lot of the social problems we see with society and it would certainly solve the housing crisis that existed then. And that has come back to bite us now. 
Um, the single tax specifically is an elaboration on the land value tax that says that the land value tax should be the only tax society has. That not only should you have this particular policy, but you should remove all other taxes. And keep in mind, at the time, there was no federal income tax. Um, so the main kind of taxes that we're really removing here are things like tariffs and um, other sorts of duties and other taxes on production and taxes on personal property and uh, taxes on capital and, um, and, th and then any taxes on sales and things like that. Um, but um, but basically the, the single tax idea is, is that this is the only tax society needs and in fact other taxes are bad for society and this tax is um, where we should put things in. And if we do this, this will accomplish all the things that related policies like land reform and land redistribution are aiming at, but um, do it in a way that is politically compatible with the kind of American system and also um, is compatible with um, with the parts of capitalism in general that um, Henry George very much agrees with. Because the big difference between a land value tax regime and a regime where basically the government owns all the land is in um, a regime where the government literally owns all the land, the government also decides what to do with it. And so this is a key difference between Georgism and socialism is George is very much against central planning, right? He's very much against, you know, the government owning the assets and deciding what to do with them. George thinks that um, the government should be in the business of taxing the recurring rental value of unimproved land. Um, but other than that, it shouldn't be telling people what they should be able to do with the land, and it shouldn't be collecting any taxes on the improvements on it. So that's the policy itself. And we can get into um, how it's supposed to work and the implications of everything um, a bit later. But that defines what land value tax is and how single tax is separate from that. Because today you'll find advocates of land value tax who may not be single taxers, and so on and so forth. So taking that into account, uh, I wanted to perhaps ask a bit about the problems and the opposition that the idea ran into uh, even at the time. Um, on the one hand, as I understand it, there, at least in the specifically American context, uh, there are issues involving the American Constitution. But as we know, uh, there were also issues involving income the constitutionality of income tax and that passed, but a land value tax did not. And that's so question number one is why, why is it the income tax one out? Uh, I guess the second question is, and this is something I noticed when I was uh, reading, uh, uh, I forget his first name, uh, English's very good, very detailed uh, history of Georgism. It's kind of funny that Georgism took fire in American cities uh, among people who rented or uh, and and others and and workers and the poor and skilled workers and so forth, but he was really deeply unpopular among uh, people living in rural America, farmers and the like, uh, who really resisted his idea. So how is it that you know wh why uh, why, uh, why the difference? Because usually you think land reform, you think uh, rural America, not urban America. And yet here you have this paradox where George is the prophet of urban America. Right. So, I mean, if we want to tackle that issue, the rural urban split. So there's the historical approach to it. And then there's um, there's the reasoning behind it and whether you could in the modern day create basically an agrarian um, constituency for Georgism. It's ironic because 
Um, a lot of other historians that kind of dismiss and smooth over George often peg him actually as an agrarian person, mostly just because they hear that he's interested in land and then they just kind of like move on from that. So England's kind of contribution is to really point out that George, no, was he, his, his main popular base was, was in the cities. And I think we need to step back a little bit and understand what's unique about America. Um, what's unique about America is that it was the new world, right? And um, before communism and socialism came along to kind of give liberal democracy and capitalism like a poll, a different poll, like liberalism, like liberal democracy, like classical liberal democracy and capitalism that we now see as being opposed to like authoritarian communism or authoritarian fascism, their original enemy was um, feudalism, aristocracy, Europe, the kings and queens and the landed gentry of Europe. That is why everyone came to America so that they could get cheap land basically. And so um, George before, um, George is not the person who really invented Georgism as we understand it. And so you can think of two movements. You can think of proto-Georgism, which is Adam Smith and Thomas Paine and the French physiocrats and all of those people who basically had the same ideas. And then there's Henry George who really Henry Forded the movements and put his kind of personal stamp on it but also just really popularized the idea. So in the time of the proto-Georgists, um, these ideas were talked about, but they were never really acted on because the frontier was open, right? It's like, well, why do we need, you know, to tax land? It makes economic sense, sure, but we got this whole continent to, to, to basically avail ourselves of. There's so much opportunity, like we, we already escaped the problem of Europe, you know, where the second Norwegian son has to get on a boat and go raid in England or move to Minnesota because there's no land left. You know, and so um, there's that aspect. And then by the time of George's time, what has happened is that the frontier is largely closed and um, industrialization is taking place in the cities and workers really need to live close to their jobs and they're crammed into these tenements and um, their rents are being extracted out of their backs because their landlords know that if they want to have access to a good job, there's a scarce amount of locations they can bid on. And so the rent gets higher and higher and higher. Um, the same kind of thing we're seeing happening now. Um, and so that made the message application very plain to urban dwellers at the time, obviously. Um, they immediately instinctively grappled onto this. Now, if we're talking about rural opposition, there was actually some rural support for Henry George, mostly from black farmers in America, um, because they had been pushed onto the most marginal land. And so to understand rural opposition, you need to understand that there are two classes of farmers. There are farmers who primarily are in farming specifically for production. And there are farmers who are in farming predict basically to um, earn value by holding on to land. Um, so the, the small hold farmers who owned land and were working it intensively um, we're more likely to support George, but the large landowners, the large, um, you know, legacy plantation owners who hadn't um, been completely broken up, they were very much opposed to this because they, you know, were quite happy with the the, the current status quo of land distribution. Um, but black farm owners in particular were very interested in the movement. Um, also in Denmark, for instance, you had um, a surge of interest in farmers in Denmark who were very interested in bringing new land into production. And um, so you had the Justice Party in Denmark that was very interested in this. So it was a little bit of a mixed bag. If you fast forward to today, 
and you say the word land value tax, you will sometimes get this objection. It's like you want to put farmers out of business. And if we look at it today, regardless of what the political controversies were in 1879 and 1890, um, today what's interesting is that, you know, agriculture the small farmer has mostly been kind of pushed out increasingly and larger and larger and larger swaths of farming is done not by small farmers, but by massive large agribusinesses. And of course, the number one owner of farmland in the U.S. today is, of course, Bill Gates and um, other people who are basically buying all of this farmland up um, essentially as investment properties. And so I'm sure Bill Gates would be opposed to a land value tax. Um, but I also don't think that Bill Gates would really represent the, you know, the kind of idealized small American farmer um, who's being increasingly pushed off. Um, and so I think the real way I would pitch Georgism to a rural um, community today is just by showing them a map of land values and remind them that it's not a land area tax. It's a land value tax. And that's admittedly some workshopping we need to do with our terminology, because if you look at a map of land values and you propose a land value tax shift, um, farmers are going to save money on their taxes, um, even probably some of the larger agribusinesses and stuff, but um, certainly the smallhold farmers, because today in the economy, agricultural land just isn't super valuable anymore. Um, and if anything, it's sprawl from the city where suburbs are sprawling out and bidding up the price of farmland to convert it into cul-de-sacs and suburbs and subdivisions. Um, so the urban land is actually where the highest value is. So I think you could make a pitch for an urban rural coalition today where basically, so to all the tenants who are living in the city who can't afford the rent, it's like, hey, we're going to solve the housing crisis. And to farmers, it's like, don't you want a tax break on your property taxes by shifting to only the unimproved value of the land? Um, that's going to move the tax base in closer to where there's population density. And we can give you kind of a break on your rural land and also stop some of the sprawl that's coming out to gobble up your land and push you off your farm. So that's um, the way I would synthesize the historical situation. There were generally, genuinely farmers who were opposed to it. Um, and then the modern situation, which is a bit different. And I do think I should mention the personality of William Jennings Bryan, who was kind of the other big populist of the day. Um, he was always an interesting character with regards to George because he was very kind of friendly with the movement, but he never fully endorsed it. And you could kind of tell that he never was completely comfortable with it and always kind of held it at arm's length. Um, so if we're talking about, you know, um, American kind of populists at the time and where they stood, he's an interesting character to discuss. But yeah, I'm kind of rambling at this point, so I'll just, I'll just kick the question back. Does that, that kind of answer where you were getting at? It very much does. Uh, if I may return, though, to the first part of my question, obviously the, the second, I should have split them up. Um, how is it that it was the income tax in the end that won out over the land value tax in terms of something that the progressive movement put so much political capital in it that it, they pushed a constitutional amendment. Yeah. So there's a chapter in Henry in, in Christopher England's book, Land and Liberty, Henry George and the Crafting of Modern Liberalism. And uh, remind me which presidential administration that was under um, the income tax got passed. Woodrow Wilson. That's right. Yeah. So Henry George as a political movement, the single taxers had kind of their largest influence in the Wilson administration. And England has uh, a whole chapter on this. And it's kind of, if you read it, it's kind of like a betrayal um, by the kind of coalition that the the Georgia, the, the single taxers forged um, 
with the kind of um, the, the reformers who wanted the income tax. The um, Because at the time, there was this constitutional amendment that um, I believe it's the apportionment clause that you can't have a direct tax on citizens unless it's apportioned um, apportioned by the states or whatever, which basically makes it like you can't have a national property tax or a land value tax or an income tax. Um, and um, basically, the Georgists made a political coalition. They were very, um, they were able to, they, they were part of the coalition that got Wilson into power. And there was a lot of cabinet members who were um, on board with the single tax movement. And then um, basically, the other side of the coalition kind of got their policy goals and then reneged on pushing for the single tax. And um, then especially with World War I and World War II kind of sucking oxygen out of the air. And, um, and then especially the real death knell was FDR because FDR not only was not interested in the single tax, um, there was still some movement energy left by that time, but he very much was interested in subs in opening a new frontier through suburbanization than he was in um, in in pushing for the the tax reforms of the single tax, and that gave us um, and that was something George didn't anticipate was that a second frontier would open right, and the second frontier was suburbanization and the automobile, and the automobile had already been invented by you know the twenties. And so when that happened, that started to take pressure off of the problem and is the reason why Georgianism is largely seen to have died for about a century. Um, and then the suburbanization frontier has kind of, I mean, there's still suburbs being built, obviously, but um, home building, I believe, peaked in around the 2006. And basically, there's a limit to how far you can build out before people get tired of commuting. And um, that frontier kind of gets fully priced in, right? That's what it means for a frontier to close. It's not that you can't go there, but for any value you can get to be fully priced in. And um, so I would say it's those things. It's some political intrigue in the Wilson administration with the other coalition getting what they want. And then the urgency behind Georgism dying out because of the opening of a new frontier. Um, kind, of, kind of temporarily removing the problem to which Georgism was the solution for. Um, at the cost, in my view, of many of the downsides of um, of suburban sprawl. I mean, I live in a suburb myself. I think there's benefits to suburban life, but I think there's also unpriced externalities. And I also think it's not a permanent solution because, you know, here we are in 2023. But um, so, yeah, that is my particular diagnosis. I'm not sure how 100%, you know, whether Chris England would super endorse that. But that's my kind of synthesis of what he's said and what others have said and what I've observed. So taking that, uh, and that's a fair analysis, and I think I generally tend to agree with it. Um, how exactly does one assess land values fairly? And I ask this because when it comes to income tax, for instance, is that, that today is the major source of revenue. There are just so many ways that you can play games with the actual value of your income and the actual value of your revenues and your dividends. And even in Henry George's time, um, I remember uh, in that history you mentioned uh, that one of the most important people Henry George inspired, uh, a fellow named Tom Johnson, who was one of America's most important reforming progressive mayors, uh, he had to deal with the fact that the railroad companies and wealthy people were often reneging or not really paying the ta uh, 
paying the taxes they should be paying. So how do you, how do you, how does one do a land value tax in a way that doesn't run into the, the problems that all the other taxes uh, create, even without you know discouraging labor capital? Right. So the thing is, the first thing, the first advantage that land value tax has is that um, land can't move. So there's the there's the problem of can you get enough data and an accurate enough and defensible and transparent enough method to actually do the work of assessing the values. But at the very least, you know where the assets are, right? And you also don't necessarily care who owns them. Those are some structural problems that we have with both income and every other kind of sales tax. Is um, so it might be good to like kind of give a survey of the challenges with other kinds of taxes. I'll be I'll be real quick about it. So with income tax you first of all need to measure all these flows of income. So you need to go at every stage of the economy and basically insert these reporting streams, usually by basically capturing people's employers and forcing them to send you stuff. But you miss all the under the table income, you miss all the illegal income. And then of course, people have entire departments designed to basically make income disappear and take losses and all kinds of stuff. Um, then with capital gains taxes and stuff, you know, you have all the offshoring, People, you know, and you have you have CEOs who basically don't pay income tax. They have a one dollar salary and all their money. Is, and then all the corporations with their corporate taxes, like they route all their taxes through foreign entities and spin up new entities. And so a big problem with those streams is that you really care about the identity of the owner of the thing. And they can move revenue streams wherever they want and reclassify them. The advantage of property based taxes is that you know, especially immobile properties, it doesn't move and you don't necessarily care who owns it, right? If there's a plot of land and it's owned by some mysterious shadow entity stacked 14 um, shell companies deep in the Bahamas, you really don't care. You basically put a bill in the mailbox and say, hey, Mr. 4732 Applewood Drive, um, please pay your tax bill and, um, you know, make sure the check is in the mail. Otherwise, you're out of compliance. And then, you know, whoever actually is the owner of that will be motivated to pay that tax. Um, so there's that aspect to start with, which is, which is an advantage. Then you get to the conventional problems of, okay, um, you know, we need to actually assess this. How do we do this? And that is a huge topic I can go into. Um, I actually um, joined a startup this year. So my job now is actually as um, a mass appraisal specialist. I work for municipal property tax um, assessment offices, mostly in Texas right now. We have about, I think, six or seven signed customers, mostly uh, counties in Texas, but we've got one in Utah we just signed. And we do um, property tax valuations, and that and that includes land, val land valuations, because in Texas, it's law that you have to value land and building separately. So I won't drown you in detail, but I'll give you a quick overview summary, and then you can ask follow-ups if you want of how we practically do that. And so basically it starts with um, land valuation is a subset of property valuation, real estate valuation, right? And real estate valuation is easier. You're just going for the total value of the, the property. Um, and the way you do that is you basically look at sales. You look at sales and then you get property characteristics. Nowadays with computers, it's a lot easier than it used to be. We can talk about how they did it in George's day with the summer system, but today, you basically get your property characteristics, you get um, the sales, you run all sorts of algorithms if you want to do mass appraisal, which um, includes multiple regression, geographic weighted regression. Um, you can do tree-based methods and machine learning. 
I prefer the simpler methods because they're more explainable. And I think you get better results if you double down on transparency and then you avoid some of the chicanery that you can do with a pure black box method. Um, to do the land valuations is interesting because um, when you say this, a lot of people will freak out and be like, well, we don't have enough vacant land sales in our jurisdiction to do land valuation, which implies that their assumption is that you're just going to look at vacant land sales and then basically extrapolate, you know, on a land per square foot basis. And if you only have, you know, 10 lots that sold last year, how are you going to do it across a large geographic area? Well, hedonic regression is a method that's very accepted in economics, which allows you to pull out the individual contribution of different features, provided you have a good enough data set. And, um, so what that does is that you basically create a large table of characteristics for every property in your area. And this includes things like um, its physical coordinates on a map, but it also includes things like uh, how big is the lot? What is the shape of the lot? Um, you know, what is the topography? You know, it, it, is it on a grade? You know, then what is the building? How big is the building? How many stories? Um, what is the quality of the building? What is, um, you know... Sometimes you can go into detail of bedrooms and bathrooms, but generally it's a very few set of characteristics actually tend to drive value when you run the equations. It's basically like how big is the heated and cooled square foot? Um, is the building falling apart? Essentially, you know, don't, don't even need like a really fine grained evaluation of that. Just like, is it low quality or high quality? Um, and then, and usually that's just captured just by the age of the building, honestly. Um, and like as a realtor say, location, location, location. So most of the values will come into factors like what neighborhood is it in? What zip code is it in? Is it a waterfront property? Yes or no. Um, what is its, dis you know, is it in the good school district, essentially? Um, all things that we know from our casual, you know, real life experience that um, real estate shoppers look for when they want to bid more for a house. Um, and then how do you test that your, your values are accurate if you don't have, you know, empty lots to test it against? With real property, we do things called ratio studies where, okay, I predicted a bunch of values for these properties. I'm going to compare that against actual sales. And you do this thing called a ratio study, basically the ratio of the actual sale versus your prediction. You want it as close to 1.0 as you can. You want to make sure that you're not overvaluing. You don't have a consistent bias towards more expensive or less expensive properties. And you want to make sure that not only is your average ratio good, but you're not like, your, your tails are very close too. Um, but then how do you do this with, you know, land valuation, if you pulled out this value and you don't have enough vacant land sales to compare it to, well, then you have other ways you can look at it. There are these things like I kind of call laws of land value. You know, you would expect side by side, if your algorithm is accurate, first of all, you would expect a, you, you should expect that you should do well on your overall ratio studies, that your model that is kind of putting, giving you a Lego brick for land and a Lego brick for building when added together should give you accurate values for the whole thing. On your ratio studies. Secondly, you would expect to um, you would expect that similar lots in similar locations of similar sizes should have about the same land per square foot value, right? Um, so if you go and put it up on a map and then you like color code it, right? And you're like, okay, so all the land value in this neighborhood with all these identical lots should be almost about the same, right? And if you're not getting that kind of smooth gradient. Um, you know, then maybe there's an issue with your model. And basically the kind of smell test here is if you can explain it to constituents who have every single motivation to protest their property taxes and they buy it and, um, 
you have a model that makes sense and a model that um, is well supported and gives accurate results for total values um, and also matches any vacant sales you do have in your data set, um, you've got a pretty good argument to say that you've got a good land valuation. And the most important thing is that people will pick apart whether you are valuing one person more than another. So in Texas, we have two standards for valuation standards. The first is assess at market value. So that's the ratio studies. So your total property has to match the market value. The second is that you have to um, be equal and uniform, which means you can't assess one person a different way than another. And so with the way you would apply this to a land valuation is that you want to make sure that all the lots in the same neighborhood are, are, are valued about equally. And um, the other laws of land value that I use to test things is that as population density and income increases, you expect land values to go up. This is something we've seen in a lot of areas and you, you'll see that with the vacant lots. Um, and then, yeah, so th those are the basic approaches to it. But I think the most important part to it is all of this stuff has to be done in the open. Right, because you can nitpick any algorithm and say, well, I don't trust this or I don't trust that. But the most important part is that you have it done out in the open and you also have a degree of political insulation um, for the entity that is doing this. That's the other part of it. So Texas is actually a really interesting case here because in the 70s, they had a really sloppy and kind of horrible property tax system. Because the thing to understand in Texas is Texas is so anti-tax. We have like two or three things in the state constitution that ban income tax. And so that means basically we're stuck with sales tax and property tax to fund everything. So local governments in Texas are almost entirely funded by property taxes. While at the same time, it's a red state and the state GOP's platform is the abolishment of property taxes. So how is this possible if they've been, if they've caught the car for 15 years, the dog that caught the car, why haven't they abolished property taxes? And it's because local governments, like where else are they going to get their funding. You know, you'll be defunding the police and fire and everyone else if you cut property taxes significantly. So the local governments in the 70s, they had this mess of a system where each one was doing their own property tax assessment. So you would receive several bills with different values on your house and it was a mess. So they set up the central appraisal district system, which is um, each cluster of local governments. And so a school district is a local government. A municipality is a local government. A county is a local government. A city is a local government. They're all independent local governments, importantly. They spun up another one, the Central Appraisal District, which is its own independent government system. And their only job is setting values. They don't assess actual taxes. All they do is figure out the values. And then they hand those values to their taxing agents, the school district, the, the city government, the county government, and uh, a special water district if it exists, and um, or a community college district if it exists. And those taxing agents will then, based off of those values, back out what their so-called millage rate, that's, a fancy, that's basically a percentage, it's just using thousands instead of 100. They'll pick their property tax millage based on what their budget's going to be this year, and then apply it to their tax base. And so this kind of insulates Texas from... Um, at least one vector of chicanery that we used to have in the 70s where the school district wants more money so the school district raises the value of your home. I mean, so now if the school district wants to get more money, they need to, you know, say that, you know, well, we're going after more money. Um, but generally speaking, um, the central appraisal districts, I think, is a pretty good way to isolate it. But basically to summarize, to avoid the chicanery, you create an independent 
branch of government whose only job is to set values and doesn't care about setting taxes and who doesn't and is somewhat insulated from any single one body of politicians who are just looking out after their own budget. Two, you use transparent methods and open data wherever possible, right? Um, You plot things on a map, you subject them to citizen review. Um, And then third, you use modern methods. And fourth, you just do it more often, right? A lot of places don't do things super often. And when you do, then you can just get values that are all over the place. So even if you're using a semi-sloped method, if you're just doing it over and over and over again every year, your values are always going to get better because the influence of land can be really clearly seen sometimes. For instance, my house, I live in a house and I have children and my children are constantly destroying my house. And so more money has been taken out of my house's value by my children and time just kind of destroying it. Um, no offense, my children, I love you, but I, I bought the house for you to destroy it. But um, the um, the amount of money I've put into upkeep hasn't even like brought it back up to the quality it had when I bought it. And yet my house is appreciated in value by over double what I've put in it in terms of money. And that's clearly value that's due to the location. So that's another way we can get a signal for land value is look at paired sales over either space or time. So over time, I can look at my own house if I have kept its maintenance quality at or about where it used to be, but it's sold again and it's sold for more, then that increase in value is largely due to land, um, you know, for for the location. And then the other aspect of it is um, over time, you have paired sales analysis. If you have similar houses, very similar down to the detail with so much cookie cutter construction happening now, it's not hard to find these comps. Um, But the value sells for different at the same time in different locations. The difference is almost certainly due to the land and not to the structures. So that is kind of a super drink from the fire hose, mass appraisal 101 and um, various methods for extracting land value. But regardless of the actual algorithm and methodology, I would say you have to double down on transparency, open data that's shared with everybody and um, engaging the public and engaging public scrutiny from them. And I could go into the summer system, which they used back in the, you know, 18 and 1900s, but I, I've gone on for long enough and I'll, I'll let you get some, you know, replies or questions or follow-ups in. So that was a very detailed and I think very fair uh, response. And I think it pretty much aligns from what I understand from England's own history uh, of George himself and his followers who had a, a vision, not only of uh, a single tax policy, but of a much more involved public government that was much more responsible to the people, much more transparent, much more neutral, or at least trying to be neutral. Uh, And in theory, at least that was the theory, uh, more efficient uh, than the private systems and franchises that were operating at the time. Before I address that, though, uh, I did want to bring up one question that I sort of been nagging in my mind as I uh, read about this this idea and about this man. Um, Henry George clearly hated rent. And so did, you know, his followers and uh, many of the other people like that. But wouldn't effectively destroying the concept of renting property basically get property owners to say, well, okay, then we won't, uh, we won't let anyone use our property for anything. They'll just buy it out and, I don't know, just sit on it like smog on the gold. Right. So, I mean, so basically the important thing to understand is there's a difference between rent in the economic sense and rent as in I'm paying you money to 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 have temporary access to something. Um, and so 
basically in George's vision of the future, there will not be landlords in the pure sense, but there will still be building lords, right? Um, and so a phenomenon you see nowadays with a lot of these people running, you know, hustle culture and, and kind of little miniature real estate empires is you'll see people who basically take out a big loan from a bank and they will go and they will buy a bunch of real estate. And then they will hire a property manager to do all the actual work of um, maintenance and responding to customer calls and, and fixing things. And um, while the landlord, the investor, besides basically taking a financial bet that you know the Fed's not going to raise interest rates and plunge the selling value of their house or something, basically any income they receive is essentially just income from speculating on the location. And um, the... The, the fact that they can hire a property manager to do all the work and still turn a profit is kind of indicative of the fact that they're mostly just renting the location. Um, the property manager in, you know, George's promised utopia would basically be what a landlord transforms into is like, if you want to get a return on your capital investment for building a bunch of units or for, um, or for improving them or for providing good services to people, you'll certainly make that. So get back to your question is it's like, Given that the landlords and um, property owners own the stuff now, and if they're rent seekers and Georgism would destroy rent seeking, like, why would they ever get on board this political coalition? Wouldn't they dig in their heels and just cry foul and go to war? Is, is, is that basically your question? Uh, it's, it's deeper than that. It's a question of why would anyone give anybody else access to as, uh, as residents or for setting up a business at all if they don't see any money from it? Right. So actually, so the thing is, basically, in George's estimation, there is no problem with renting capital. And there is no problem with renting your labor. Renting your labor is basically just, just you know, being employed. And renting capital is just investing, right? I'm going to give, you know, um, so what George has a problem with, though, let me give you an example of, um, so in Houston, we have a lot of downtown parking lots. Right. And these will be valued at millions of dollars. And right next to it will be a big building. And that big building is paying more in property taxes than the empty lot. And Henry George thinks it should be the opposite because the big building is providing a lot of things for society. It's providing housing. It's providing um, job locations. It's, it's providing a lot of stuff. And um, the parking lot next door that someone bought 10 years ago and is just holding on to, which has massively increased in value, double, tripled, quadrupled in value. Um, the entire surround, like everyone who's building something in that area is creating value that is being soaked up by adjacent lots, right? And that parking lot is completely free riding on the hard work and the investment of the laborers and the capitalists of the area. But it's contributing nothing back itself. And it is, and, and the only act of owning that parking lot and fencing it off and saying, this is mine. The only thing you're really doing is excluding others from it. And how are you excluding others from it? You are enlisting the state to enforce your title to it. So you paid some money a long time ago. And now until you decide otherwise, basically you can call the cops on anyone who steps foot on it is, is the service you are allegedly providing to society. And so George is essentially saying, this is not a productive anything that someone's doing. If someone wants to invest, then they should invest. And if they're not, you know, if they, but if they're taking the things 
in the public domain that everybody needs. And so when you think about it, you know, George's whole economic philosophy is based off of the three factors of production, land, labor, and capital. And basically, George says that land is something that everybody needs and that nobody can produce any more of. And he also throws in with land um, natural resources, right? And um, basically, he feels like when you gatekeep land, you're not being productive, you're not contributing back, you're not producing, you're basically just putting up a fence and a toll gate and charging the other two factors of production. Um, You're basically the equivalent of a robber baron on the Rhine who says, I won't let you pass, you know, and you're, you're not even, you're, you're based, and, and this is a choke on the economy. It's essentially a private form of taxation, um, but one that doesn't then get reinvested in public goods. And so George's argument, in, and that we've, we've seen kind of empirically borne out now, is that ironically, usually your intuition with taxes is that if you tax something, you get less of it. But because land at any specific location is inelastic in supply, um, is, is fixed in supply, if you tax land, you don't get any less of that land. But what you do get is you get a hot potato effect where someone who's holding on to it to basically hope that it would go up in value in the future just gets rid of it and gives it to someone who has a use for it now. And then that leads to all the things we want to see. It leads to increased production. It leads to uh, increased investment, leads to increased building. And it also leads to less sprawl. People stop gobbling up more marginal land because more available land is in the high value areas they care about. So basically, my answer to your question is that there's been some empirical studies done on, you know, we've never had a full strength land value tax, but to the degree that we have partial land value taxes, we do see increased activity and increased investment of the sort we want to see. And um, basically, George's theoretical argument for it is that the mere act of holding land out of use, apart from building great stuff on it, the mere act of holding it out of use is not actually contributing anything to society. It's actually taking from society. Okay. Um, going back to my, uh, the, I think it was the first part of my, uh, my last response. Um, as mentioned, as I mentioned in my introduction, and as you've discussed in part, uh, George had a, a very interesting and very unique vision among um, many of his contemporaries, most of whom were bemoaning, like you said, the loss of the frontier, the loss of rural America, uh, who were looking for new frontiers or homesteaders to settle, and who more generally tended to see uh, growing American cities as bad, as almost Europeanizing with all its class conflict and, and social strife. And George was uh, quite the opposite. He was very optimistic. He believed that through things like the, uh, like the single tax, that public institutions that would bring, and bring people together that would create a, a civic sense, he was very enthusiastic about that. That's why I called him the prophet of American modernity in that sense. Uh, but I would like to ask, these, it all sounds very nice. But is there not also a danger, uh, like there is really with any other tax, that uh, someone who's very publicly minded basically says, well, there's so many things we can spend it on. So you keep hiking up the tax uh, because you want want every single kind of social service under the sun. What control would there be, um, ideological, legal or otherwise, uh, using such a tax to say, 
okay, there are certain things that are very good that should be invested for, for public goods, uh, but this isn't unlimited. Yeah, so there's a couple of limits, and that's a very good thing because, you know, the Georgists kind of got bit once by this in the past where they're like, hey, team up with us, bro. We'll help you get your stuff. And, oh, well, look at that. We passed an income tax, and now you're booted out of the party coalition, and good luck, right? You know, so once once bitten, twice shy. How do you avoid, basically, enthusiasm for the single tax being subverted into, you know, so for one, the first limit is that you don't want to drive people off of the land by driving the land value tax up so high that it would basically be more than 100% of the rental value. And so to understand what I mean by that, um, this is like how much you would rent the land for. And so in practice, it's 5 to 8 to 10%, depending on the area, of how much it sells for. Just the land, not with the buildings on it, right? Uh, that has to do with what we call capitalization rates. Um, so you would never, ever want to see a land value tax, you know, that, 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 that got higher than that in practice. And in practice, like, I mean, Texas has really high property taxes, and I think it's in like the low single digits. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's even 2%, you know. Um, and so we're nowhere close to that for one. Um, second, I think there is a unique opportunity in areas that already have a high property tax, especially areas like Texas, which is self-guarding against uh, tax adventurism, right, of, of creeping taxation, which is the best path forward to a land value tax in Texas is by cutting taxes, specifically by cutting taxes on buildings. And the way I frame this is not as a land value tax, but as a universal building exemption from property taxes. So in Texas, I don't talk land value tax, I talk universal building exemption. Because in Texas, we are having a property tax crisis right now. And it's really ironic because the Republicans have been saying for years they want to abolish property taxes, but they just can't do it because the local governments won't stand for it and no one wants an income tax. And so they muddle around and they're like, well, what do we do? And so all they do is they squeeze the sausage. And by that, I mean, it's like whack-a-mole. You know, you squeeze one end of the sausage, the other side pops up. And they do this with little piecemeal exemptions. Usually the homestead exemption is very popular. But the thing people don't realize about individual category exemptions is the city and the school district are going to raise the same budget anyway. So if you exempt one category of thing, the, 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 the tax burden just falls somewhere else, right? And so if you give a break to people in this neighborhood, you're overtaxing people in this other neighborhood, relatively speaking. So what you should do, the only real solution to this conundrum they've got into is, in my view, a universal building exemption, first of all, would deliver more tax relief to the median homeowner than even the homestead exemption, which is a fixed dollar amount. This will exempt the entire value of your home structure. And then secondly, that will shift the sausage in a way that's actually economically viable because now everyone has an incentive to build. And so... Um, and also it's like, well, a lot of people's fear is that it's like, okay, you pass a land value tax. That's a new tax on top of all our other taxes. Whereas here I'm talking about, okay, we already have a high property tax in Texas. Let's just exempt all the buildings. Poof. Now it's a land value tax. And you don't need to worry about it being a new tax because the very way you would implement it is as an exemption across the board. And I would ideally want to roll up you know, all these other weird little piecemeal exemptions, just roll them all up under a universal building exemption um, so that you can make it easier to administrate as well. So there's even less room for chicanery in the implementation because right now, like the homestead exemption is actually a pain in the butt to administrate because I basically need to check that you're not committing housing exemption bigamy, essentially, 
because you are entitled to one and only one homestead exemption. Only one home can be your homestead. And so I need to go in and suddenly I need to care about who owns what. Now I need to like, and so like local appraisal districts are like contracting with law firms and private investigators whose only job is like figuring out if Bob and Sally are really divorced because then they would each get an exemption. Whereas if they're merely separated, then maybe Sally gets it, maybe Bob gets it. And then maybe Bob actually has a homestead in Florida and what's the deal? It's a mess. And so my approach politically, at least in a high property tax regime like Texas is the universal building exemption pitch. Now, what would you do in a place like California? I mean, there you'd have to like repeal Proposition 13 and that's an uphill swim. I don't know how they're going to do it. And then there's also the question of it's like, okay, what level do you want it at? If you were to do it in a place like Texas, you've got this naturally kind of devolved local government approach. It would be very more bottom up. In places like Vermont, they're talking about, they're talking about doing it more top down, but then Vermont is really tiny already. Like, I don't think there's even a million, is there even a million people in Vermont? Um, I don't, I don't know. Like, there's not a lot of people in Vermont. Um, and so, like, there, there's like individual counties in Texas, I'm sure, that have more people than Vermont. So, you know, that would be probably more of a state down level. I would expect places like New York and California that are more liberal to want to do more top down stuff. Me kind of growing up in a conservative family and, you know, um, I'm, I kind of have proclivities to do things a little bit more bottom up so long as they're a little bit insulated from the hyper local, just nonsense that you usually get. Um, and I think the central appraisal district is a good method for that. I'm getting a little bit off track now. I'll let you follow up in case I, I missed a point, but that that's my general kind of approach, um, to things. Um, the other limit is just that if you start taxing land more than its full value, you will drive people off of it and you will destroy your own tax base. Um, the theorists always say that land value tax, if you tax it, you're going to push investment into capital and labor, which is what you want, which in turn will even you know maybe raise your land values a little bit. And so you'll get this good flywheel going. And then you can also avoid the situation. Um, you're going to be incentivized to do public works that raise land values, like building parks and, and things like that. Um, so it kind of orients and, and re-changes the incentives of local government as well. Um, and I, I think that's somewhat borne out, but we haven't had strong enough land value taxes, you know, for me to just cry that from the rooftops. Um, but that's the argument that's made. Um, and then I mix that with my own implementation details for how I would politically go about it in my own jurisdiction. So that's, that's kind of my answer. So I think so far, I think, you have really uh, provided us with an excellent uh, summary, both of uh, George the man and Georgism the idea. Uh, and I really look forward uh, to seeing this idea uh, pick up steam, uh, I hope, in uh, various localities and in various states. And so we can have a better sense of uh, just how viable uh, this once revolutionary concept, uh, concept really is. Lars Doucet, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a, it's been a delight uh, and it's been very, uh, very educational. Well, thank you very much, Avi. I'm a big fan. I'm, I, I noticed you just had an episode come out on the American frontier. I, I, I look forward to listening to that because that's a big part of this story, you know, and there's, there's energy building. California has a bill to study LVT. Uh, Detroit is interested in bringing it back. Um, and uh, Vermont has some sort of a draft bill in the works and, and I'm trying to push universal building exemption in Texas one day. So we'll see if we'll see if it ever gets there. Um, I really appreciate your insights. Um, I'm a big fan of your work. And thanks very much for having me.
Pleasure's all mine. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And you can support the podcast on Patreon, Avi's Conversational Corner. Have a good day. Thank you.